Hello, and welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jaina Hill. And today we embark on an eternal journey to read all of Marvel's Eternals. Excelsior! Jaina is not very excited about this, as you can tell. <laughs> Did I lose a bet? I mean, I did lose a bet, um, but I don't, I don't think this, this had bet. anything to do with that. I just no. agreed to this because I'm insane. Yeah, you you did. Um, no, the next bet that that you, we may win or lose, one of us is going to lose, and both of us are definitely going to lose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but that's not for another few months. Uh, no, we were discussing what to do for our 100th episode, which we are here at can't believe we're at 100 and i pitched to you doing all of the eternals because i know you hate the eternals but i figured maybe this could either convince you to like them love them or at least tolerate them uh and also kind of explore the weird corners of marvel because there aren't that many like actual eternals comics so i figured it was doable (laughs) Yeah, and I I anticipate that I will suffer Stockholm Syndrome at some point during this epic quest <laughs> and really think I like the Eternals. And we'll see if that's how I feel at the end. We'll see. We'll see. It's not how I felt before reading these books, but today we are talking very specifically about Jack Kirby's Eternals, who, uh, Jack Kirby, King, King Kirby. We're talking about Jack Kirby. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're going to do a little bit of a... About some background on Jack uh, and and Kirby. We've uh, have we talked about him before? No, we've really really only done like Ditko and Lee because we did Spider Man. Yeah, the earliest things we covered were Ditko Lee, and then by the time we did some other seventies stuff, but wasn't Kirby related. Yeah, and it's I guess very appropriate that our new theme song is debuting here with probably the spaciest of the books uh, we've we've done that isn't like actually set in space i like to think that that's the music that would start playing if silver surfer kissed adam warlock (laughs) that's what i think inspired our theme song and our composer i I think you'd be right i think you'd be right so who is this jack kirby fellow uh elias do you know much about the biography of jack kirby I, you know, I don't actually know that much about the biography of Jack Kirby. Most of what I know is kind of the, you know, some of the hearsay about his his fights with with Lee um, and kind of the part of the push to try and get creators uh, the rights for some of his comics. Um, A lot of feuds, a lot of feuds, because I think he had a very... Not that he was temperamental, but he was like, this is the way these things are. And then the companies would treat him like shit. And then he'd be like, why are you treating me like shit? I will punch you. Uh, (laughs) And they're like, too bad. An accomplished boxer, that Jack Kirby. Yeah, I know a lot of a lot of him from caricatures in Will Eisner's works. Yeah, and uh, and in modern Marvel, the uh, Jack Kirby like characters will show up. the The historiography of Kirby is very interesting. I think I've officially been into comics long enough that I've like watched the needle move on Kirby opinions. Oh, interesting. But I think firmly we are in the age of like Kirby is a saint. Kirby is the comics messiah. <laughs> was that not the case before? Was he kind of reviled for a little bit? Um, Maybe not reviled, but in the nineties, like Stan Lee's self-image tour was so successful that uh kirby and ditko and everybody were not even thought of oh wow and i mean obviously i'm speaking in generalities uh because the image boom was all about the artist but that's kind of like a reaction to things getting more writer-centric for a while interesting okay um but now yeah people love kirby and for good reason I forget who it was who said, uh, if you tell Jack Kirby to draw a hundred different spaceships, every single one would be a completely different spaceship, which is absolutely true. Yeah, I I feel that. Uh, actually, I did write, I think it was two years ago. I did, a, no, no, more than two years ago. For the hundredth hundredth anniversary of when Kirby would have been a hundred, I did a piece for the site, um, which was not what I was asked to do. <laughs> it was like uh, 1,500 words and way more pictures than that it was supposed to be it was supposed to just kind of be a here are a bunch of really cool kirby pages and panels and i was like let's write a sprawling thing going from early kirby to late kirby 
Uh, that sounds great. I don't think I read that when that came out. I'm going to go back and read it. It should have been part of my research for this episode. <laughs> I have no idea how good it is now, but it was fun. So Jack Kirby, not born Jack Kirby, who was born Jacob Kurtzberg. Um, and he was like on the Lower East Side of New York. And like the only era would be on the Lower East Side was like a cool, tough thing. <laughs> Um, and he's coming up in the Depression. There's stories about Jack Kirby, like, filling a sock with gravel and jumping out from a stoop and knocking people on the head and stealing a purse. <laughs> like, as, as a as a kid, he was, like, a stick-up guy. Uh-huh. And I think the, the main thing that people used to characterize Jack Kirby is that he had, like, really bad luck. Just, mm. like, uh, he uh, had an uncanny ability to accidentally snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Oh... Um, uh, Kirby gets drafted into the U.S. Army in 1943. I think I've mistakenly said, perhaps on this very podcast, that Jack Kirby landed on D-Day. That is untrue, but he did land on Omaha Beach about, uh, two months after D-Day. Mm. And, but I, uh, before that, he creates Captain America with Joe Simon in 1941. Um, I suppose you probably know this, but a very, uh, often shared piece of that story is that when... Uh, Jack Kirby drew the picture of Captain America punching Hitler in the face. The U.S. had not declared war yet. And, Mm -hmm. like, uh, Kirby's position, anti-Hitler position, was considered pretty extreme when that issue came out. And that was a very striking image for it. Yeah, which is wild to think about now. Yeah, yeah, it is completely wild to think. Well, and just, like, uh, Kirby really won that argument with America, I think. (laughs) I think his position was validated. Yeah. By the next 50 years of American history. Anyway, uh, Marvel kicks off in earnest in 1962. But as you were saying, like Kirby has like a really tough time with it. He and Stan Lee are like best friends and terrible rivals. Steve <laughs> Ditko's such a fucking weirdo that I'm sure he was a blast to hang out with. Yeah, the, the early Marvel, Marvel offices sound kind of weird. Was he with Timely, which became Marvel, you know, before that? I... Okay, I haven't read this recently, but if I remember correctly, he and Stan Lee were both doing work for hire for Timely. Mm -hmm. Kirby more than Lee, because Lee was just a little kid at that point. Mm. He was like the intern. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, but Kirby Kirby did like romance comics and westerns and monster stuff. The old Kirby stuff is really cool because he's so singular. Mm -hmm. Um, And because like uh, when you see him develop his style, you'll see like, uh, like Kirby loves drawing a character with his hair which is to say he's got, like, white graying at the temples. Yeah. You see that in Nick Fury. You see that in Reed Richards. You see that in Doctor Strange. Oh, oh yeah. Um, there's just, like, a lot of Marvel characters who have Jack Kirby's haircut, because that's how you like to draw people. Was Wait, do- I thought Doctor Strange was Ditko. Or Created Kirby- by Ditko, but, either in- but influenced by, like, Kirby's predilection for drawing characters like this. Mm. Uh, Personality-wise, uh, people always said, I found an interview where Kirby was laughing about this, that uh, Ben Grimm is the Marvel character that is most most like him in mannerisms. <laughs> and personal history, too. Also a, a tough kid from the Lower East Side. But that I ben can Grimm. see that, yeah. And I guess, so, Stan Lee, I always like to characterize as the character that I thought he wrote the best was uh, J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> so the Stan and Jack dynamic is akin to if Jay Jonah worked with Ben Grimm. He would just bully the thing the whole time. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, Jack Kirby leaves Marvel in the early 70s after um, a lot of bad blood. One of the books he does over at DC, in fact, he has a, ca- a character named Funky Flashman, which is just his way of getting back at Stanley, and he writes Stanley as like a real asshole. Was that one of the new gods? Yeah, he's a New Gods character. He's a, He has a kind of a big role in the Tom King Mr. Miracle. Oh, yeah. He's like the babysitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who yeah, looks yeah. and talks like Stan Lee. That's why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the reason. Uh-huh. Um, but so New Gods comes out of DC in 1971. That's a more of a DC thing. But if you don't know the origins of that story, I think it was George Perez. No, he wasn't there yet, was he? They had somebody draw, like he drew Superman in a book and somebody drew over Jack Kirby's face for Superman. Oh. Because it was like off mod. Like, how dare you draw, like, draw over a Jack Kirby face? That guy defined what a comic face looks like in American superhero books. Oof. But anyway, famously Darkseid first shows up in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Because Kirby was doing a bunch of Superman's pal, wasn't he? Right, but so they they hired Jack Kirby, and then instead of act, treating him like they got the star player from the other team, they put him in like the the worst selling book. Mm. And you know, Jack Kirby never can catch a break. Yep. 
that's his story. But so, how, how much of New Gods have you read, Elias? Zero. Don't talk much about. Never read New Gods. Never read New Gods. I know the story of New Gods. Um, like not the plot, but like the meta story of Kirby writing it and doing all the all the fourth world stuff and all you know, bu- basically building his own mythology, uh, and then it getting shit canned before he could finish it. <laughs> That's all true, although, it, like, if you read Jack Kirby's New Gods books, they're a fucking masterpiece, they're his magnum opus, they're the best thing he ever wrote, in my opinion, and many other people's opinion, but, mm-hmm. like, like strongly, I don't think there's even a contender for a number the number one spot. Okay. And it's, like, his thesis on, like, all his ideas he lays out in the New Gods, and all the mythology is about, like, the ethical, metaphysical questions that he pondered, and that's gonna be really important talking about Eternals. Mm-hmm. Eternals comes out at Marvel in 76, so five years after he left, he's coming back. Yep. And pretty much everyone let, would leave him alone, and he got to write Captain America for a while. I, I like his Captain America stuff. It's pretty cool. There's some good stories there. Uh, he also creates Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur. Oh. Huh. Like, two characters. That, mm-hmm. Like, uh, that, just two characters who have, like, a very different role now, though, when Kirby's like, I don't know, there's a red Tyrannosaurus. It's a Devil Dinosaur. <laughs> True. Is this was this when he was given Black Panther to do, or was that earlier? Yeah, yeah, that's that was in this era. Okay, he does very interesting stuff with Black Panther. Yeah, the the cover is very Kirby. Yeah, Kirby ultimately dies in '94. Um, Stanley only recently passed, so Kirby was dead for many years when Stanley was still a public figure, mm-hmm. and I think that also had to do with the diminishing of Kirby's memory mm-hmm. in the public consciousness. Mm-hmm. But so what's interesting is I think I don't think there's a good, there's a good argument for anything but this. The Eternals are Kirby's like final biggest creation. They're the la- the last book he really worked on. Yeah, I guess. I, yeah, <laughs> he did runs on like he went back to Captain America and he he did characters that he had done before. But the and I don't know exactly how Devil Dinosaur dates against Eternals, but like you know Devil Dinosaur is kind of a different thing now. Eternals was the last Kirby idea. Yeah, and the last Kirby idea that still retains that core Kirby essence across, well, we'll see, um, across the years and the generations and the iterations, it all kind of still has the same kind of core. Devil Dinosaur kind of does, but it feels like one of the... it. Devil Dinosaur doesn't really feel like a Kirby monster moving through the years as someone like, um, oh, I don't know, Klaatu or someone... Right. Well, and and I feel like, I guess this we'll, we'll see as we go on, but I feel like now Eternals is kind of a, a writer and an artist's chance to pay tribute to the styles of Jack Kirby mm. in this very pure way where you just kind of like imagine what Jack Kirby might have imagined in a way that New Gods isn't. New Gods is about the characters and what they symbolize, and Eternals yeah. is about their creator and what he symbolizes a lot of the time, I For think. Sure. This, is my, this is my thesis. We'll see if I'm right. This is the thesis ever... you'll slowly build. Yeah, this is my hypothesis. I ha- I haven't read enough Eternals. I've only read uh I've read the game in and some of the other stuff. But um so the other thing worth mentioning with the Eternals is Chariots of the Gods. A book that I've never read, have you? No. No. The name is familiar though. Yeah, it gets referenced a lot in the like today uh for oh. for what it did to the culture and what it inspired. Oh, so it's I a German book. Yeah, and I in my research I found a lot of um, disputing perspectives, but as 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 well as I can figure out, Chariots of the Gods Unsolved Mysteries from the Past, uh, written in '68 by Eric von Daniken. I, my mom speaks German, and she's not going to listen to this episode. But if she did, I'm going to be so embarrassed. <laughs> um, and um, he kind of writes it as this like nonfiction academic faux academic book, and he at the time he's very dismissed right i'm i'm gonna have to take your word for it but this like this sounds like that that wave and i mean it's not like they're not around anymore but that wave of like fake memoirs and nonfiction books that like they're pretending to be and no one really is is disputing it and the publishers are like this is definitely true like go ask alice or um um books like that well i'm also finding people like what he never said it was anything but a novel and i'm like a lot of people are saying the opposite of that, but whatever. <laughs> on the back, the, the, it says nonfiction above the UPC code. I mean, it says something in German on the back. I don't know what it says. <laughs> but um, this book is credited with inspiring the genre of ancient astronauts. Um, the idea that like a long, long time ago, be- before people were evolved, aliens came and like seeded. 
ideas and structures and whatever. Yeah. 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, Ridley Scott's Prometheus dabbles in this. I had a better example. Um, Worst example, Crystal Skull, Indiana Jones and the, what is it of the Crystal Skull? Uh, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Skull. There's no adjective. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, no. Kingdom. Kingdom. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Here you go. Kingdom of the Crystal. I knew it needed a word in there. That had some major ancient astronauts thing. Oh, yeah. But then I was finding out that, like, LOL, uh, there was a lot of influence that he was drawing from, including H.P. Lovecraft and this French novel called Morning of the Magicians, which was definitely a novel and was credited at blending, like, uh, basically it kind of invented urban fantasy. Mm Mm-hmm. It, like, uh, invented the, like, secret society genre of, like, mysticism. They didn't invent it, but Constantine wouldn't exist without without this book. Huh. Weird. And Kirby, in every interview ever, said that he had read Chariots of the Gods and was inspired to do The Eternals. That's weird. <laughs> but you can see it. You can feel it. Yeah, I mean, so much, so much. The the basic idea of um, what if the humans would think that these aliens were gods and they would worship them, it's like so present in Kirby's work across Marvel. Yeah. I have two quotes that I want to share with you. And um, and I guess I'll save my like, well, the thematic stuff for when we talk about the story. But so I found on KirbyMuseum.org a quote that Jack said in a 1986 interview. And um, <laughs> he said, the Eternals, the Eternals are the gap that we can't fill. We don't know what happened back in biblical days. We've killed a lot of people because of it, but we don't know what happened back then. Did Jonah blow down Jericho with 40 trumpets? I'd like to see someone do it. I feel that from time to time, mankind has risen and destroyed itself and left something for the survivors. Hmm. I don't know what to make of that quote. I I think we'll, we'll get more into it, I guess, when we as we go through the Eternals, but the quote's kind of... I guess it's kind of about... Yeah, it, just basically being like... We think human history is kind of a, a line, but he's like, no, 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 it's not a line. It's a bunch of fa- stops and starts, and we we kind of keep destroying ourselves. Yeah, um, thematically that comes across. I his his we don't know about Bible times because you can't possibly do archaeology is a little sus to me, but whatever. Oh, I I guess I thought he meant like we we can't really confirm what what actually happened. Like we've got this Bible like these Bible stories and we're like, well, we don't know what of this is true. What of this is not like we can confirm some things, but we'll, we'll never really know the whys and the hows and it's all narrative. Yeah. And I, and that's definitely a good inspiration point for a character for the eternal, perhaps mm-hmm. so somebody who remembers all of history and has an opinion about it. That's uh, a cool idea for a story. I've seen that story told in cool ways before. What's that uh, Greg Rucka one? Um, the Old Guard. Yeah. yeah the Old yeah, Guard yeah. does that story really well. It does. Anyway, I have another quote for you. This is from Jack's wife, Roz. Mm-hmm. She calls the Eternals an afterthought, an anticlimax. Hmm. That's an interesting way of con- of considering the book. Yeah. Well, that's kind of how I feel about it. And I feel like it's interesting that Roz, when she was looking back at Jack's career, was like, oh, yeah, Jack didn't know what the fuck he was doing. Throughout the interviews I was reading, uh, Jack Kirby seems really bitter about a lot of things that happened in his career. But then on the other, in the same breath, he will talk about how he sees hope in the world. Hmm. Largely what I think he means about that is that uh, he thinks that the 70s are and the 80s are really sleazy. And he was calling out a lot of the trends happening in cinema. At one point he said movies are just comics. And then he started criticizing uh, the new Hollywood movement in, 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 in movies. Oh, I don't know what that is. That's like when um, you see fewer, uh, very broadly, we're not going to get into all film history right now, but um, you, you, you're transitioning from like musicals and Bible epics and Westerns into like The Godfather and The French Connection and like Taxi Driver. Okay. These more like gritty, unsentimental, unglossy movies about compromised people. Ah. Uh. When before that, everything was musicals and it was like glam and glitz. Um, that's what Kirby is nostalgic for. That's the uh, old Hollywood movie, uh, old age of Hollywood. Yeah. And it's, it coincides with the Silver Age of comics. And the Bronze Age is very interested in the kind of stuff Kirby's talking about. He's criticizing, I mean to say. Yeah. Like the uh, like all the Claremont X-Men and New Teen Titans. All the cool Bronze Age books are very... Gra- they're much more grounded than they are G-Wiz. Yeah, they're, they're kind of concerned with the personal failings and, and foibles and, um, you know, potential gray morals that people have to deal with instead of 
clear-cut, here's the hero, here's the villain melodrama, basically. Yeah. Like, in the very classical melodrama sense. I, so I guess my last piece of Kirby context to just take into this to think about is um, that Kirby was looking at this book as, like, a, he felt like he was an older part of the old guard, no reference intended, and um, <laughs> that he wanted to, like, keep some sort of, like, spirit of hope and optimism alive in the face of what he thought was sleaze and cynicism. Which is fascinating to look back on 70s and 80s and like you can see it, but it's like, yeah, yeah, the sleaze and cynicism is significantly less than than what he seemed to be thinking, considering comics that come after and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely going to get worse uh, before it gets better, Jack, if it gets better at all. I think it gets different. I I don't share Jack Kirby's criticism. I just think it's an interesting uh, perspective mm-hmm. when reading his Eternals, which yes. I think we should talk about after the break yeah let's i think that that's a good idea hello podcast listeners we're the hosts of the dc3 cast i'm zach i'm vince and i'm brian each week we discuss most of the new releases from dc comics focusing mainly on rebirth wildstorm and young animal we also look at the news of the week discuss the film and television adaptations of dc material and dig into industry rumors we've also had a number of dc creators on our show like scott snyder jim lee christopher priest steve orlando and joshua williamson so if you like borat jokes no bad to end of dio impressions this is bad what the f- and an in-depth look at dc each week join us every wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice come get jurgens with us and we're back Thank you for wading through that lovely ad. Uh, we are here talking the first half of Jack Kirby's The Eternals. Uh, so now we're actually going to be getting into the book. We read issues 1 through 10, which was contained in the first volume of Jack Kirby's The Eternals. Uh, and the basic premise of this story, we should actually introduce this. We've been talking for, what, 20-something minutes, and we haven't actually introduced what The Eternals are. Yeah, well, Jack Kirby, like I, like I, I presented from the front, I think every everyone's going to be in conversation with with Jack Kirby, the man, even more than they are with the, these characters. Yeah, yeah. So the basic premise of the Eternals is there are there's a secret history to the world that we don't know about because it's so old, it's been lost to time, uh, to the humans at least. Because there are actually three races of man: uh, the deviants, whose entire form is molecularly unstable and so they all they give jack an excuse to draw as many of his you know like monster designs as possible lumpy frogmen a lot of frogmen a lot of frogmen the eternals who are well as the name says eternals and they're kind of like sculpted from marble perfect in every way but not because they're actually the inspiration for all of the gods of antiquity uh, and they've kind of been here and then there's the human race and we all split off from something i don't know it gets a little a little confusing my favorite little little bit from like the first issue uh no from the second issue is icarus is our basically our main eternal he is the spokesman for them he's the one we interact with the most uh he is the dove that brought noah's ark to safety <laughs> They've sure, been sticking for it. I I love that detail. <laughs> no, that detail does rule. I cannot dispute that. But I don't know if we should go issue by issue through the Eternals because, as you were saying before the show, it's very Silver Age, but also each issue very much feels independent from each other in a way that you know, like when we were reading Taskmaster. Well, no, Taskmaster kind of had that, but. But it's definitely, it's less serialized than a lot of the Bronze Age books become. It's more episodic. And it's also, um, you can tell that uh, Jack Kirby's trying to give his readers a bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of of words, a lot of story. It's very dense, um, but not bad. One thing I just like immediately, so I was reading this on Marvel Unlimited. Uh And I started on Guided View. Never fucking read a Jack Kirby comic on Guided View. It's awful. No, awful. Um, so I took it off Guided View and I started doing it where you can scroll. And just like Jack Kirby comics are great, <laughs> controversial <laughs> opinion. Uh, he does he draws mostly in six panel grids. Every so often he will uh, in, like, double up a grid uh, horizontally or vertically for emphasis. And then a couple times per issue he'll have a single or double page splash for emphasis. 
And just like when you're reading a Jack Kirby comic, all you, even though this is the most common basic kind of comic book pacing, it's like, uh, it takes my breath away. The only person I think who kind of uh, writes scripts that are like Kirby comics now is Brian K. Vaughn. Oh, yeah. He does a lot of like, we both in Paper Girls with Cliff Chang and Fiona Staples in Saga. He does a lot of like four and six very simple grid layouts um, to like put ultimate expression in each panel. And every panel is a story beat. There's not like abstract panels for vibes. Yeah. And he'll often like, especially here in the Eternals, there's a lot of single, single images on the first page. It's not always a full splash because the top quarter to a half is covered in opening words, which I, I got a kick out of most of those. And then often it'll open to a two page spread, which are really gorgeous. Yeah, 100%. And the poses and the costumes and the the intense shadows on the very uh, upsetting faces that I love. <laughs> and like all of the uh the like weird machine bits. I talked about the he just Kirby spaceships are so cool and he just draws such cool gadgets and gizmos. Yeah, yeah. It's even if you don't like the story, watch like the concepts and the the journey is a lot of fun. And I can't promise that you or our listeners that I read every word on every page of these 10 issues. I but can. like, it's like, well, you know, I was reading a little bit quickly for some of it. But like, man, if the the panels just tell the story perfectly. They really do. These words. I mean, it's fine. Some of the words are great. Some, some of them are. But they're very, they're very bombastic. Yeah. Oftentimes it'll give you kind of like the extraneous details that he can't give or the techno babble that like can't really be conveyed in the text. Um... Oh, but Kirby's got such a cool rhythm. It's like yeah. his own. Uh, Fantastic Four has such a Kirby rhythm to it. It's just you know what it, you know what he is like. Mm-hmm, for sure. Like all the the women get the Unimind and whatnot. Oh, we don't it's actually a... get to the Unimind in this section. I know. I was just thinking that's the most Kirby name for a thing I've ever heard in my life. It really is. But okay, so we meet Icarus. I remember this character being named Ikari in later comics. Am I crazy? No idea. And um, Icarus is traveling with. Um, Dr. Dr. Damien. Yeah. Who I looked it up was a character that Kirby introduced in Fantastic Four number 64. Huh. So bringing back like a deep cut, him and the, his daughter. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. I fun pull. I was, I was curious if those characters uh, ever showed up again. Yeah. And then it turns out that wasn't the first time they had been introduced. I had a note, actually. I was like, oh, the first time we mentioned something that's tied to the Marvel Universe is in like issue five or six. But now that you mentioned that... I'm wrong. Page one. Page one, baby. Okay, so this is where we have to talk about the elephant in the room, right? Which is that the Eternals is a fucking stupid idea. (laughs) Jack Kirby (laughs) created Thor for Marvel, like did all this Norse mythology shit because he loves Norse mythology. Jack Kirby wrote Hercules into that Thor comic, I'm pretty sure. That was a Kirby issue, I think. Uh, uh, You would know better than me. So, like, Jack Kirby knows that the gods are already a thing in Marvel. So immediately the concept of the Eternals just creates this, like, huge continuity problem where one does not need to exist. Which is why I initially thought that he was creating the Eternals at Marvel, but not for the Marvel Universe. Uh, And then, like, there was a mandate a few issue ends where they're like, you gotta start including the Marvel characters. And, I mean, maybe he was doing that with... You know, he brought back these these doctor characters that he liked, and he's like, well, if, you know, we could connect it to the Marvel Universe if we want, but eh, who knows? But then, like, eventually he turned, uh, Cersei turned some guy's head into Ben Grimm and all that good stuff. Good gag. I laughed. That was funny. That was a good. What was his name? Uh, Arnold Radish. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Fundamentally. The worst Kirby comic is better than a lot of people's best comic. Yeah. So this was not a a terrible read for me. But okay, it's a stupid fucking idea because so the eternal sub the eternals are these eternal beings that people met and thought were the gods. And I guess if you if they like left that alone and that wasn't the main thing, I would like get over it. But they're so fucking smug about it. They're just like stupid humans didn't know that we were just guys. Yeah, they're like Anyone could do this if they trained for a thousand years. Yeah, and just like they have this like unearned arrogance where also they are wrong. For example, <laughs> in what did I write down the issue number? Oh, describe what happened. In issue three or four, when Cersei gets introduced, um, she's referring to herself and it's spelled in the issue S E R S Y. Uh huh. Uh huh. 
And then in the next issue, they return the spelling to um, how it's spelled later in the Marvel Universe, S-E-R-S-I. Yes, I think that's issue four. And then in the the issue where they get the right spelling, Cersei has this line, the Greek storytellers never could get my name right. Oh my god. And I'm god. just like, bitch, you were spelling it wrong in your own word bubbles last issue. So, to be fair, to be fair, um, the letterer actually changed between those two issues. So it's very possible that it was a letterer issue. So actually, let's let's run down the credits. So this was written and drawn by Jack Kirby. Written, drawn, and created by Jack Kirby is a credit on most of the issues. Oh, good point. He was probably very, very a stickler about that this time. I was keeping an eye out for that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was inked first. The first four issues were inked by John Verporten, uh, and then his longtime collaborator on Commandi, um, or Commandi? I never know what pronunciation. Uh, I like Commandi. Yeah, me too. Uh, Mike Royer. Uh, and then the first issue was lettered, lettered by Gaspar as he's credited in the issue, but it's Gaspar Saladino. Uh, issues two and three were John Costanza. Irving Watanabe was number issue four, which is the one where Cersei was spelled S-E-R-S-Y. Uh, and then Mike Royer does the lettering for all of the issues that he inks. Um, and then the colorist was Glennis Ween the whole time. Uh, and for the collection that I have, they read they restored the color by Mike Kelleher and Illustration. I don't know what that means. I don't know what how it was restored. I don't know if this looks better or worse than the originals. But I have to imagine go. that uh, that true comic fans reject the recolorization. Although I'd like some modern recolorizations, especially of like late '80s stuff when the colors were so garish. Yeah, and I like the colors in this. I think they did a really good job of you know keeping it all and maybe that's just because of kirby's drawings and the the inkers inking doing such a good job of it um yeah it i mean it looks like it looks great i will not deny that anyway i'm obviously playing a little (laughs) bit here but i just like it's fundamentally a stupid idea because so i i couldn't get over this and I, i finally went down a little bit of a rabbit hole to figure out like how do they square the circle for example, um, really, really early on, um, Icarus and Dr. Damien and Dr. Damien's daughter, who I'm sure has a name, but not a personality, um, go are like, they're like investigating some Incan ruins and then they meet up with this Incan Margo. god, but sorry, her name is Margo. Sure. That's a name that a lady has. Um, <laughs> they go into these Incan ruins and they meet up with an Incan god, but JK, it's not an Incan god. It's one of the Eternals. And his name is Makari because he's really Mercury, LOL. And no, no, Makari wasn't Makari wasn't the the Incan god in the in the thing. Makari was on Olympia, hiding up on the mountains, as Icarus tells what? them. The the god that they meet. Oh, Ajak, Ajak, Ajak. Yes, the priest. Yeah, and this fucking sucks because so chariots of the god is a is is a pretty racist premise. And this is where it really, like, is, like, not fun. <laughs> Jack Kirby's not having fun with this genre because the implication here is that the Incan gods are were fake and that these g- characters that were famous from the Greek myths then came over. These blonde, not swarthy characters, very important to note, um, came over the ocean and then, like, uh, became worshipped as the Incan gods. So the Incan gods are the same people that already were the Greek heroes and they don't even get their own gods. Yeah, well, we don't... It's not clear which order it went in, like if they went Greece to to the Americas or the other way around or whatever. It's just it's the same people. But the drawings are, yes, you're right, that that's just what what they're all looking like. And there's like this there's a very eugenics uh-huh. phrenology bent to all of this, which in 1976 was still that's kind of when the resurgence of this stuff started to happen. Totally. That's why this genre was such a hit right now. Yeah. And I, but it doesn't feel like he's trying to kind of play it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about any of it. The reason I found it so galling yeah. was because of the, the constant smugness. Yeah. Because it's really easy to translate the smugness into a cultural superiority because the Eternals are constantly going around talking about how primitive man was and they couldn't even realize that eternal science wasn't just magic the fools. <laughs> <laughs> and thus thematic yeah. thematically in the story um the the eternals the protagonists are condescending towards people who believed in them 
Which is fascinating because they're also condescending to all the people who don't believe in them. Right. But, but they're, they're um, yeah, you're right. It's uh, Which makes it super annoying. But then coupled with the fact that the the implication that the, or that the story is supposed to be about how all the gods of the world were actually these blonde guys from a mountain in Greece who weren't the Greek gods. They just were there. Mm-hmm. Is like stupid, complicated, messy, racist, and unpleasant to read about when the story is getting into that shit. Mm. Yeah. That's my that's my big gripe with this. The pictures are lovely. Uh, there's a bad guy. He's pretty boring, but he's like a frog man. His name is Crow. Yeah. I, I wouldn't call him a frog man, but I get what you mean. Or, or were you referring right, to like, because I think there's a like Captain Toad, T-O-D-E, at some point. Like, Yeah, that's a pretty great name. Um, what, what was his title? Continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as we're going through this, um, I'm talking about, I keep wanting to call him Gore, but that's the God Butcher. Crow. Crow, yes, Crow. Uh, Crow Crow. is like a pink devil guy who put on horns, and there's this whole storyline about how he, like, tricked the stupid people into thinking he was a devil because they think the devil has horns. Okay, let's actually actually get into that. Let's get into that. that. Because the... So the first two issues are really focused on kind of setting up the premise, setting up... You know, who are the Eternals? Who are the Deviants? Why is why is there this big conflict between them and, and the humans and, you know, the secret history kind of stuff? Um, when Crow is first introduced, he looks like he walked out of the Matrix. <laughs> I love his outfit here with the, the stupid glasses. Um, you know, I wonder if this is where the MCU got the idea that sunglasses and a baseball cap is the best disguise in the world, because that's what Icarus is wearing here. Uh, my theory about that is that's just how Kevin Feige dresses. <laughs> he thinks that's just a normal way. He's like, when they're pretending to be normal people, they dress exactly like me. So does that mean Kevin Feige is Icarus? No, God, no. Richard Madden is Icarus. I think I haven't seen that movie yet, but I will. <laughs> Yeah, the first couple issues are, are introducing the very uh, tumultuous premise of all of this, and also the idea that the Eternals, that everyone was created by these giant beings from space uh, called, as we will eventually learn, the Celestials, but at first they're just called the Space Gods. Um, and a- and, the, and Elias, mm-hmm. the Celestials fucking rule. The Celestials are so cool. Um, they they're rock. one of the coolest Jack Kirby designs ever. Oh my god! They're, I get, they're just like difficult to describe, right? They're like uh, hundreds of feet tall colossi who look like they're made of like metal or saran wrap, and then like their heads are these big like weird gadgets. Yeah, because inside there is the actual head of the celestial. Like what we see is not the actual face of the celestial, as it's constantly described. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. and they're they're and. And I really think what's interesting is I feel like the Celestials, more than the Eternals, are probably the um, the continuity legacy of this book because the Celestials as the creators of life across the universe shows up in a lot of Marvel books. And a lot of mm-hmm. different Marvel characters have like contended with uh, the ruins of Celestial interference. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm just trying to... So, the yeah, the first couple issues are kind of dealing with that and setting up this battle between the deviants and the space guys. Like, basically, the, the deviants are the... in a, If we're assume, pretending, every, like, getting rid of all the sci-fi stuff, like, the deviants are the people who thumb their noses at authority, all authority. They're like, fuck you. Um, we'll, we'll fight you, no matter what. That's the, yeah. that's the core basic setup there. Um, whereas the Eternals are, like, the protectors of the big status quo and... Interestingly, the Eternals are trying to summon the space gods, and then the Deviants are, like, trying to stop them, and that just kind of gets washed away at the end of issue one or two. I'm like, okay. And then issue three, we change tact again, where the Deviants are led by Crow. They storm New York, and they're trying to basically convince the humans that devils are real again, because stupid superstitious humans in the 70s, uh... Why wouldn't they believe that these weird creatures that look like devils are coming to attack? And this is this is what the height of the satan- satanic panic. No, this is the beginnings of the, the satanic the panic. Beginnings? I'd say we're, okay, it hasn't peaked yet. Okay, and I have an answer to your question, Elias. Why wouldn't people believe that? Because Mephisto is a character already by nineteen seventy six. Almost definitely. Yeah, but um, if you saw Crow show up in the middle of the street. If he and you showing he like actual devil pro- powers, you'd be like, "Well, this guy's dangerous and scary." I don't know if I'd think he's the devil, but I'd be like, "Well, I don't want to be near this guy anymore." 
Uh, the first time Mephisto appears as, like, Mephisto Mephisto is in 1968. Oh, wow. Um, in a Silver Server book. Huh, interesting. Um, so John Buscema. is on John fire Buscema. again. Um, yeah, and I, I, it's this extra complicating thing where if they, they, this is why just, if you took out the smugness, if they were just like, oh, the stupid people, they think I'm the devil, but the devil isn't real. He is real. His name is Mephisto and he's got a son named Blackheart. <laughs> um, this is why this would have worked so much better, not in the Marvel universe. <laughs> yeah. If this was just like a standalone comic, this is not a terrible premise. Um, Icarus also, uh, like, conjures his super suit in this issue, and it's a really cool design. Jack Kirby could draw a super suit. Unfortunately, he's kind of just Superman. He's just, like, flying around, he's got eye beams, and he's super strong. Yeah, and then he gets taken out like a chump. It, off, which often happens to Superman. Uh, that's true. But cool costume. I really liked the attack in New York. I, I love yeah. this issue. I love issue four. Um, I love issue five. Just the the him getting to draw all of these creepy as they call them the mutates uh-huh. like they just look like i love this one panel on page well it's page 81 in my collection uh of it looks like a gargoyle it just says run ha 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 it's got these teeth <laughs> it's such a great panel and like basically these two issues are kirby's excuse to have superman flying around and stopping the alien invasion yeah and this is what i thought would be the kind of the driving force of the de- the deviants trying to stop provoke the space gut or create and build tension in order for there to kind of be this conflict between humans and celestials and have that be kind of a a way to try to take a celestial like that that drama is what I thought would drive the rest of the comic and this is where issue five is kind of where things start to shift. And I don't know if you noticed that. No, I completely noticed. Issue five is where we first start meeting other Eternals in a big way. We've met Icarus and Cersei. I guess we've met a couple, but issue five is like where Eternals, their relationships, their society starts to like come into focus of the story. Mm -hmm. And so do the Deviants. Yeah. And this is like where we're starting to build mythology. And uh, it's kind of a mess, but it's not a boring mess. No. And then, but once we get to issue six, they kind of... Kirby starts to change the narrative. If it's like I don't know if he decide like this was what he always wanted to do. If you know someone said something, if he was just like things aren't really working, I need to take this in a new direction. But we start getting more sympathetic looks at the deviants, which honestly I kind of like. I like complicating your villains, complicating your. They don't really complicate the heroes. The heroes all kind of suck. <laughs> um, and like, we don't get any good humans. They all, they're also kind of smug or condescending or sexist. God, Crow, Crow calling Thena female all the time. Good. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a Jackism. Yeah. I was surprised at how early, uh, cause I've read some of the modern eternal stuff, uh, the Kieran Gillen stuff and uh, sympathetic deviance is kind of a big part of that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I figured that that, that seems so, um, that's, that seems like modern compassion. And I was kind of surprised to see it in 1975. And I'm kind of, uh, I shouldn't have uh, underestimated Jack. Yeah. He's a very compassionate guy. It's both a, it's a good move, but I also think it undermines and makes the, the work less good, less coherent. Because suddenly Crow just kind of acquiesces and like, fine, I'm going to stop terrorizing the humans, whatever. Let's try to work all together to do stuff to stop the space gods or, or whatever. I'm like, but what what prompted this change? He was all in. He was like full on cackling villain. And now we're kind of stepping that back to have him be kind of more of a like a suave ish, you know, smooth talker character. I mean, it's built into the premise. He's deviant. He's got shifting molecules. His whole premise could change page to page. Okay, okay. I'll 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 eat that explanation. No prize. <laughs> yeah, no prize. Uh, yeah, because like they like they pack up Icarus and they send him to the bottom of the ocean. I guess they just didn't want him around for the battle. I guess Kirby's like, no, get rid of him. I need to get rid of him for now. Um, Which again is what you would do in a Superman book. You take yeah. him off the board and have all his supporting cast run around for a while. Yeah, and then he comes back. They're like, yeah, yeah we'll we'll save Icarus. And suddenly everything's hunky dory between the Deviants and the Eternals. But Jack had set it up as like they hate each other from the beginning. Yeah, that's the eternal conflict. Yeah, and it's kind of like it kind of pulls out a lot of the momentum, a lot of the stakes. Yeah, and I still like this comic, but I'm like. 
goodness. We start spinning our wheels a little bit. Real quick, but issue seven, I, I don't think is will. Issue seven is when we get an entire issue that's just like celestial mythology stuff. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It's called yes. The Fourth Host. Yes. I wrote, um, the celestials are a good idea. Like having these all powerful beings at the beginning of time and space that are like trippy is cool. Yeah. And having Jack Kirby draw them is a great idea. Because as we talked about, they look great. And having the shield agents kind of suck in that like very basically having who would once be the heroes of the science adventure comic now be clearly wrong in the villains maybe not the villains but like the obstinate wrongdoers is a a, a great inversion well they're like, they're like the military industrial complex and uh, the eternals and deviants represent like a purer form of life on earth yeah so much so that they can just like destroy a tactical nuke this guy carried a tactical nuke what the hell i've seen seen guys carry a tactical nuke before elias oh goodness i feel like i've seen a rocket raccoon carry a tactical nuke maybe but not some guy named stevenson no i mean i couldn't get invested in him because his name was stevenson it's okay he's locked into a box afterwards that's my favorite thing the celestials so the these three shield agents try to sneak up basically the Celestials have created a dome around the ci- the, in- the Incan city that they were excavating at the beginning that the doctors, um, you know, the doctor had stayed behind. Um, he had forced his daughter to be carried out by Icarus because women can't do anything in this, unfortunately. Yeah, that doesn't, the, the Kirby sexism was another bummer where I'm like, all right, the next three pages I'm skimming. I don't want to hear this guy's speech. Yeah, although there were some, some fun lines that are just like, all right, dude, chill. Um, like Icarus flying out of his uh, his pill coffin to say, "Have a care, Cersei. You toy with a bruised male ego." At least he understands himself. Yeah, that's also the that's the weird thing, right? Despite how sometimes he could be kind of miserable, uh, he was never unself aware. Yeah, but like, yeah, they they the Celestials kind of put them into a into a box. They de de atomize or whatever, and then they re- get reconstructed. And then they get deconstructed again because they were trying to run. Uh, yeah, and yeah. this is just like where the Kirby's describing like these molecules are getting compressed to form these like life seeds. And just like I could listen, I could read Kirby doing that all day. That part is rules. I love the weird mythology. I love the creepiness and the freakiness and the art. Mm-hmm. Now that we're stopping this really stupid premise of uh, we're confused as to what gods are and we're mean about it. And now we're like... A, weird space gods who could understand them i want to understand them you got me jack yeah although he still throws it in like the the ladder of fire do you remember um, that yeah but that was that was cool that's true the, the image is really cool yeah it will just if we again if, if he just like let that speak for itself and was just putting those images out there and then people are like hey i know where there's a ladder of fire in folklore no, but that's that's not the era. You have to put, like, copious amounts of descriptive text. The purple prose must be there. Then describe it with purple prose. I'm just saying, if he didn't make the connection, if he was just, like, using all of these uh, images, I feel like th- this could be a little bit fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here we get, at the end of issue... This, is, this was seven. Yeah, is, at the end of issue seven, we get kind of the new premise which is the space gods the fourth host is here to judge the earth that it will judge over a 50 year time period and if like the roman emperors of old deem that we are thumbs down we die which is uh i guess we're gonna at the end of this whole series we'll get to talk about judgment day uh, no, the day of Alpha. Oh, I guess Judgment Day and then the day of Alpha. Whatever that is. I mean, that's is. the premise to the story that we are currently reading in Marvel Comics. This is true. How many times have the Celestials judged us? So many times. That's actually a really interesting question that I'm going to try to answer. Ooh. I don't know if we'll cover there's them also, all. Well, there's also continuities where, like, Earth is just an egg and it's trying to hatch Franklin Richards or fucking whatever. And so he goes, he's going to be a Celestial. Don't worry about what? it. What? Earth X, don't worry about it. What? I'm not going to worry it's about like it, a, but, uh, what? Uh, yeah. The Franklin Richards is connected to some wild shit, and so are the uh, Celestials. Oh, that's, um, that's so weird. Yeah, it's super, yeah. Marvel history is weird, man. Um, Eternals number eight is the, is the, is the froggy one. Yes, yes. Um, and this is the one that gets into, um, Fina and her, like, fraught romance with the Deviant, which, again, I understand is going to be, like, a big thread through the Eternals. Yeah. 
that and kind of learning more about deviant society and basically seeing how it's just like ours, but inverted. I'm going to keep my Superman metaphor going because that's very bizarro. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They are very, they are very bizarro. They are. It's also, (sighs) no one comes out looking good from these issues because Thena shows up and is just like, why would you make the beautiful one battle? But she doesn't give care about any of the other ones except for the ones that she can look upon with pity. Which, actually, I don't know if Kirby was trying to make commentary with that. But I feel there is there is commentary on how, like, you know, rich white people look upon other societies and, like, project their own values on who should be pitied and who should be saved and like who is worthy of these things and like what are we putting on to them and also what when can we say no that's just bad like single combat and forcing your mutates to to fight i mean you're, we're definitely bringing a modern lens to this old story but that's a cool thing to do yeah and i think herbie like Kirby's sexism has always been, like, at this inflection point of me not understanding the guy. Mm-hmm. Because so much of his work is about, like, uh, radical freedom and compassion and the healing power of love and how that gives your life meaning. And then he's like, but women aren't people. <laughs> and I, I just like, what happened to all the radical freedom from a second ago, yeah. Jacob? Come on, Jake. Come on, um, dude. But, uh, and so and this issue being... Um, like a romance kind of kind of drags for that reason because he just can't see women as people. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, actually, issue eight is entirely focused on that. I kind of appreciate him taking the the time to to do that. Oh no, not no, no. I'm sorry. Part of part of eight's also focused on um Cersei and the the Doctor. I think we get a couple cutaway pages of that. But that's that's good pacing. That's like a, that, that's a great monthly comic feel. Yeah, you got to remind people of the rest. And he's juggling an ensemble cast. He's not giving everybody, like, one fight move that doesn't mean anything per issue. Mm-hmm. He gives everyone... Everyone in the issue gets a scene in the issue. Yep. Hey, Cersei gives the Deviants, Humans, and Internals funny hats. It's a great gag. Yeah. She loves giving people funny looks. She does. She's kind of a trickster uh, in that way. And so is when we're introduced in issue 9 to Sprite, who looks just like Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> you're right. I didn't notice that, but you're right. You think I would with my... Uh, being on the Superman kick like I am, but you're right. <laughs> he's kind of a he's kind of a goofball. He looks also he looks like a cross between Jimmy Olsen and Tintin. Yeah, that's kind of the the look the look that and the vibe that he has. It's that impish look with the the little cowlick, and you know it's fun. It, him summoning it gives Kirby an excuse to draw more monsters. Yeah, and these are probably the best monsters in the bunch. Yep. And then the final issue we're going to be talking about this time is Mother issue ten. A pretty good song by Danzig. I recommend the Lissy cover. If you're reading these, I would definitely take a look at all of the covers. They're a lot of fun in the in that classic way. And my favorite part has to be all of the, the like little bits that are trying to sell you on it. Like on this one, there's just this giant hand over a, a destroyed city, which is from, you can, you can tell from context, the Deviant City. Uh, and it just says, the Eternals, the city that died twice. Like, That's such a good tagline if that's not the title it should be yeah it stinks that a lot of the insides aren't as exciting as the covers (laughs) yeah but this one actually lives up pretty pretty well to the hype as he draws a celestial basically laying waste to lumuria the name of the um deviant city which i feel like is another one of those like a reference to another one of those um atlantis style it is you are correct yeah um, it was originally a continent proposed in 1864 mm. by a uh, British uh, a zoologist, huh? Um, but uh, it was like a, when European people were making up hypothetical names for continents. Continents so that they could still be like, look how superior the Europeans were. That's how Australia was a hypothetical name before they applied it to something. Huh, I didn't know that. Terra Australialis. I wish I... I'm rusty on this stuff. Uh, probably for the best. Lemuria was, um, no, that's, that's the Lilliput, I was thinking. Oh, of the, the Gulli- Gulliver tra- Gulliver's Travels? Yeah, uh, but Lemuria gets used uh, as a name for, in a lot of, a lot of fantasy shit. Yeah. Anyway, the, uh, Eternal City, uh, the Deviant City of Lemuria is, uh, like, facing down a Celestial, and yeah, just, like, that can't not be cool. No, and... 
he succeeds. The Celestial destroys the city. Um, Thena blips out of there with um, Carcass, which was the, the name of the, the creature that everyone kept calling a monster. And um, Reject. Was it Reject? Yeah, Reject, who's the pretty boy. Pretty boy with an awful temper. Yeah, I yeah. Yeah, which, you know, considering he's been beaten for his entire life in the comic, makes sense. Yeah, I'm just like, uh, this book is being pulled in a bunch of different directions, and a bunch of them are interesting, but I don't think any it commits to any of them enough No, uh, for me to get fully invested. Like Crow. Crow, the doomed romance, and kind of... that Because that's the, that's the note issue 10 on. It, issue 10 ends on. It's Crow kind of calling out for Athena as the city floods around him and starts to crumble. And I'm like... That's a really interesting place to end. It kind of shows his romance comics roots. And, you know, I, li- I like the thread of Crow Crow's change, even if all of the characters kind of, you know, everyone kind of sucks in this comic. Yeah, that's just a fact of it. But I, Crow has a weird, interesting, unstable journey where he flips around. I guess it, what it really shows is like Kirby knows story structure. So he knows that this is a good scene and he's right. He just didn't really connect it to any other scenes. Yeah. Like, I don't feel like uh, the journey here was very meaningful. But him uh, yelling for his uh, lover as she abandons him to his home flooding and uh, his presumed death is like, yeah, that's a stirring moment. That, that's emotional. Yeah. And you, you, you feel for Crow. You don't, you don't, yeah. I mean, you kind of feel for Thena too, but you feel, you feel for Crow. You're just like, oh man, he just lost his home. He's been trying to kind of make some sort of peace, which is why it's so weird that it took that huge shift from yes i want to pretend to be the devil to get the humans to murder these space gods to like yeah you know kind of being the voice of of somewhat reason i don't think i uh i have a no prize for this but yeah this happens a lot with the your new series you're feeling out the characters mm-hmm. it happened when when a comic series didn't immediately get canceled yeah yeah and the other, I guess, important plot point is that Zurus, Zuras, the the king of the Eternals, who looks kind of like I don't even know, he's he's covered in just so much red hair, just so much. Yeah, hair. he he looks like Marvel Zeus. Well, I mean that that is who he's supposed to be. Yeah, or or is he? This premise is confusing. Let's pretend. We can pretend. Yeah, that's the note that it ends on. It ends on like a strong note, but kind of without any structure around it. Yeah. But next time we're going to see if Kirby ends up like tying a nice bow on this because we're going to finish out the run. So that is Eternals number 11 to 19 and annual number one. Mm -hmm. And this was another series that we'll probably get a little bit into it next time that ended before it was supposed to, quote unquote, um, yeah, I'm curious to see how that feels. I'm, I'm yeah. sure he will do something spectacular with it, even if it's nonsense. <laughs> For sure. So we've kind of talked around it and we've talked about it. Um, but what was your, I guess, thoughts on these 10 issues overall? I thought they were really uneven. You know, again, worse Kirby work better than many people's best work. But I thought like uh, they they went all over the place and it was kind of hard to get my footing, but I enjoyed them more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. And I'm already thinking like there's already a resonance happening with the, the contemporary Eternal stuff that is like making some meaning for me. And that's not nothing like the Athena doomed romance thing stays going. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's pretty much the most interesting thing to me right now. And then Cersei uh, being duplicitous, I guess, keeps going. I guess, but she hasn't really been duplicitous here. She's just kind of been like a scamp. Yeah, which is which is interesting because all the talk of her later, it's like she's a snake and all of this. Although in the modern stuff, there's less of that tone that I had in my voice. But here, <laughs> she's just kind of like she she is impish in a different way from Sprite. Yeah, uh, puckish even. But now we're we're crossing all of our yeah. fairy myths. I like Cersei here actually. She's she's a lot of fun. I kinda, yeah, I kind of like Cersei here too. Yeah, I hope that I hope that the, this comes together and that I feel like we went on a journey that has like a meaningful destination. For sure. Uh, you in our notes, you've got a quote, another quote here. Did you want to bring it up or? Um, well, I think we'll get into that next time okay. when we talk more about continuity stuff, because I know we're going to be meeting other Marvel characters in the back half of this run. 
Mm. And I and I did some more digging on like squaring the circle of how the Eternals can coexist with various Marvel deities, <laughs> the deities that actually exist. Yeah, we're gonna, I, I'm going to see if uh, that gets mentioned in the final couple issues, but I'm going to have a whole structure to talk about these next time. Don't you worry. Okay. I just hope we get the one shot where Icarus is a dove. I mean, yeah, I would read the hell out of that story. That sounds rad. So next time, uh, if you're reading these, you can find them also in the Eternals Complete Collection trade, trade paperback or just the second half of the Eternals by Jack Kirby. Or there's some giant omnibus that's probably long out of print because Marvel can't keep anything in print. Um called Eternals the Complete Saga Omnibus that has all of these issues. Or you can find them on Marvel Unlimited or a back issue bin or wherever you find comics. Hoopla. We forgot to plug Hoopla. It's on Hoopla. Oh, and Ho- oh yes, it is on Hoopla. The The Eternals is on... Most of what we are reading is on Hoopla. I did this research beforehand because I wanted to find out where I could read it. And my library actually has most of these in print too, which has been very nice on my eyes to read. Um, nice. But until next time, where can they find you, Jaina, on the larger interwebs? Uh, people can find me reviewing comics and talking about X-Men on multiversitycomics.com. You can also find me sometimes doing reviews over at uh, Comic Book Herald, both pretty great websites. And you can find me on Twitter at rambling underscore moose. Elias, what about you? Where can you be found on the larger internet? I can be found on Twitter at Quetzal-ish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. I am not going to claim that it was named, that the uh, ancient god Quetzalcoatl was named after me because I, I did directly take it from that name. Um, <laughs> you can find me writing at multiversitycomics.com as well. Uh, we are in the nice lull of the fall for me. Thank goodness. Uh, and then we're going to be, I'm going to be getting ready for, for year end review stuff soon. So that, yeah, it's, it's coming. It's coming. Till then, Excelsior. Excelsior.